Welcome back to Never Alone. In this episode, we are going to be chatting with our friend Ashlyn, who is a mom of two and a licensed therapist. Unfortunately, Ashlyn has experienced loss herself, and we thought she'd be a good person to just chat with about um, what loss and grief look like and give us some tips around how to navigate that time. So welcome, Ashlyn. Good morning. Happy <laughs> to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, <clears throat> even though this isn't the most fun topic, obviously, we mm-hmm. our goal is that our listeners would be able to just navigate this time. I know we've both searched for ways to heal quicker and just what we can do to, I guess, mitigate the grief. So we're excited to learn from you and also just hear your story. So I guess we'll just start off with a little bit of an intro. So tell us a little bit more about about you and your family, what you do, and then walk us through your journey. Okay. Um, I am a therapist and I typically see kind of adolescents all the way through adulthood. I work with a lot of families and parents. And I think before um, this experience, I thought that getting the babies here was the easy part, that raising the babies was the hard part um, because of a lot of what I see in my office and help families with. But I think that my own pregnancy journey has really shaped my understanding of grief and of just the pathways that we all get to parenthood and family Mm -hmm. together. I am married. I've been married for nine years and I have two babies Earthside and yeah, live here in Atlanta and get to be friends with both of you. (laughs) I know, (laughs) which we're so, so happy about. We um, really do cherish this friendship. So We, like Morgan said, we're glad that um, we get to have this conversation today, but of course are sad about the topic that we're going to be covering. So give us a little bit of just background or history of kind of y'all's story, which led y'all to loss. Absolutely. Um, So two summers ago, my husband and I got pregnant and... I think in my mind at that time, there were a lot of milestones that once you got past those, you were safe. (laughs) So one of them was the positive pregnancy test. And once you got to that point, that was a huge hurdle. Mm -hmm. And then getting to the heartbeat, making sure the baby was in the right place, the baby had a heartbeat, that felt like a huge hurdle. And once you got past some of those milestones, I felt like things don't go wrong. For us, we started having trouble... I guess I was 13 weeks along and on a trip to the lake with some friends. And we noticed that just things were not okay. I had some bleeding. And by the time we got back, I had convinced myself that things were were okay, that there are lots of reasons for bleeding during Uh pregnancy. And there are. We were waiting for the results from the NIPT. So if you have walked this road before, there's a test that you can have done, a blood test, starting at 10 weeks, most people do it to find out the gender of their Mm -hmm. baby, but it also checks for chromosomal abnormalities. And so we were waiting for the results of that test to come back. And um, it was actually while I was driving to the OB for an Mm. ultrasound that I got a call that our results had come back abnormal. And so the NIPT is just a screening test. And and the doctor that talked to me was like, remember, it's just screening. Mm -hmm. It can be wrong. There are false positives. And now looking back, 
the baby was okay that day and we ended up losing him a week later. But um, I was really thankful for the doctor that I met with that morning. It wasn't my normal doctor and I actually had met with him before and didn't really prefer meeting with him. I felt like he was <laughs> um, kind of not your favorite. Yes, not my favorite. <laughs> and um, and so he was um, the one I met with that morning, but I was thankful for him because he was really straightforward with me that mm. while some of the abnormalities that it screens for can produce false positives, it was very rare in the one that we were screening mm-hmm. um, for. And so that kind of helped us for the following week while we were in this limbo place of kind of preparing our hearts that mm. we would, the best case scenario, have a diagnosis that could look pretty grim. And we saw other things on the ultrasound that told us the baby was not likely to survive, even though babies do survive with this diagnosis. And so we had a week where we were in limbo and then at, at our CVS test, which is a test you can do to confirm there was no heartbeat there. And so that is where we started the process of, you know, getting me ready for surgery and really um, solidifying that, the baby we had dreamed of wasn't going to kind of be ours on earth. And, um, and after that kind of followed definitely a season of grief. I have a lot of examples in my mind where I didn't grieve well. Um, even as a therapist, we're not robots. And I think that I had to learn a lot about what it means to grieve. Well, I have a question. Yeah. So, so sorry, obviously. Um, but just going back to that week where you kind of knew things weren't looking good and you say you're preparing your heart, like tell us how that, I mean, I guess if there was anything you did in that time or like if you are thankful that you had that time or if it was really hard or I don't mm-hmm. know, we, we talked a lot about like the gray area and that comes up yeah. a lot in infertility. Even when you have a positive test or see the heartbeat, like there's still this like there a lot of times things aren't looking good for a while. Mm-hmm. So I just, I think that would be helpful to hear about. Absolutely. And I, and I think I spoke with some friends that had similar stories, mm-hmm. but maybe different experiences where mm. they either didn't have the bleeding or mm-hmm. they um, weren't far along enough to get the test results. So mm-hmm. I think we had a lot of clarity that mm-hmm. a lot of people are robbed of mm-hmm. during that time. And I think that was helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I grieve for people that don't have that, mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, grief comes up at all of these different stages in IVF and then also mm-hmm. um, infertility. And when people have a chemical pregnancy where they get that positive test mm-hmm. and then a negative test right. you know, days later, I think there's a lot of ambiguous grief that happens. And mm-hmm. I want to say a lot about that later, but I think that for us having the information that we had was helpful. I think it would have been really traumatic to go in for what I thought was a normal ultrasound Mm -hmm. and for there to be no heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So I think that we kind of stair-stepped into that, which I am really grateful for. Mm -hmm. I will say during that week, looking back, I think my dad made a comment later that um, I was really punchy during that week. And (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but um, I was something. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of went into this crazy problem solving mode Mm -hmm. of this seeking out of information of trying to get every detail possible of Mm -hmm. trying to analyze my own ultrasounds while we were waiting for the CVS, just this really crazy 
you know, problem solving, which continued long after the miscarriage. But I think that that's just my way of coping. Yes. Madison and I were talking about that before you got here uh, with our recent loss of just like comparing ultrasounds. And in that moment is when I was like, okay, this is definitely not because doctors, I think you said you had a straightforward doctor and mm-hmm. our doctor is straightforward and they don't want to like cause alarm until they really know. And mm-hmm. at this point they just, they didn't really know, but in like the problem solving that I took on myself of just like comparing, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this, this is not correct. And I think it's so crushing, but like what you said, preparing your heart. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, tell us about what, you, how, the, how the weeks followed, you were saying that you kind of got stuck in that spiral. Yes, very much so. So I think that during that week in between, it was just, you know, what are we going to do? What does the, you know, information that we have tell us and kind of projecting out, like, if it goes this way, if it goes Mm -hmm. this way, what if we have, what if I'm carrying a baby that, you know, has a life-threatening diagnosis Mm -hmm. and, but the pregnancy, you know, remains and continues Mm -hmm. to be healthy. And so I, we were just going through all of those different things. And so it felt in some ways when we went in and there was no heartbeat, it felt like it was merciful mm-hmm. of just there was we could land to that plane. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it wasn't on the Island I wanted to be on, but yeah. I just needed to get out of the air. Yeah. And I was thankful for that. I think what followed was a continuation of that mm-hmm. problem solving. And I went, I didn't give my heart any time to grieve. Mm-hmm. I just went directly from that to, we need to get pregnant again, that I was chasing this timeline and this picture of what our family, you know, was going to look like. And I needed to just move forward. And I think that's where I got really stuck. And And I think, I think it's tricky from what I've heard when a lot of women have a loss, the doctor is cautious by saying, take as much time as you need for your heart, obviously for your hormones. We obviously probably should wait till your numbers get back to normal maybe, but you actually have a better chance of getting pregnant the sooner than mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of women's mind after a loss, it's conflicting because mm-hmm. it's like my doctor's telling me that mm-hmm. this is the best chance to get pregnant again, but I literally just lost a child mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't know if my heart's ready for it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell us, did you feel that? Absolutely. I remember as I was waiting for surgery and talking to my OB and asking that question of, you know, what, what should we do after this? And they said, you know, studies show that people are more likely to get pregnant in the three months following a loss. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was hard in a few ways because then I just like threw myself into that, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to get pregnant again. And then also it was just crushing when those three months passed Mm -hmm. and then six months passed, you know, and and we weren't getting pregnant because then it was like, well, I've already missed my greatest chance. You know, mm-hmm. like it was those three months and mm-hmm. we're not getting pregnant and and kind of seeking that and then trying to problem solve this, you know, process my body is going through yeah. of both healing from that and regulating and trying to get back to normal and then trying to get pregnant yeah. again. I think so many people can resonate with that though, of just like the timeline and wanting to move forward. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to objectively look at your situation and take a break. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw a really beautiful quote recently that was, that said, 
babies don't replace babies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wish that I had that perspective because I think similar to you, it was just like, let's move forward. Like Mm -hmm. let's catch up for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. So I guess looking back, is there, are there things that you would have done differently or I guess like, tell us about that. Yeah. I think that the process of trying to get pregnant is so hard because you can only try once a month, Mm -hmm. you know, that if you don't get pregnant that month, you have to wait a whole other, you know, for the next round to come. And you're, you're living in these kind of two week increments Mm -hmm. of, you know, getting your period two weeks, you ovulate, you know, if your cycle runs on that system. And, um, and that I think is just painful. And Mm -hmm. so it feels like if you take a break that time is escaping you, Mm -hmm. that I was amazed at how one, when you're waiting to ovulate or you're waiting to test Mm -hmm. how slow time goes. Mm -hmm. But then as I was looking at people pregnant around me, it felt like time was flying by. Mm -hmm. I was, I was missing out and this Mm -hmm. time was escaping me. So it was both flying and crawling. So I wish I had just given myself a little bit of time. And I think it was just hard. Mm -hmm. I couldn't come to terms with the idea of missing a month Yeah, that that really made me so anxious, but I wish I had because Mm -hmm. we didn't get pregnant those months anyways. Mm -hmm. And I also, I remember going to see my OB and her saying, do you, do you want to look at taking some medication? Like, Mm -hmm. do you want to get on SSRI? And um, being in this field, I have so many clients that are on SSRIs, like, which can be an anxiety medication or a depression medication. And it's so helpful. And I've been on one personally in the past and I wish I had taken Mm -hmm. that. I just felt like, no, what I'm feeling is normal. I lost a baby. There's nothing, you know, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had, because I think that my anxiety was just out Mm -hmm. of range. And, Mm -hmm. and I think had I been able to reel that in a little bit, I would have just been more at peace during Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, I don't think that's right for everybody, but I just wish that I had listened to the people around me and kind of their offers for different types of help because Mm -hmm. I felt like, no, the help I need is getting pregnant, Mm -hmm. not being less anxious. And, um, I I needed less people to tell me to relax. That's for one thing, but like, I I did need to figure out how to slow myself down. Mm -hmm. I didn't. Was there a moment or a time where that kind of hit a halt and you were like, okay, what am I doing? So there were two where I feel like I was able to shift course a little bit. Um, one was a few weeks after the miscarriage. I went to, we had previously scheduled to go to a concert with some friends and my husband was like, maybe we should take the night off, you know, being in big crowds and concert maybe isn't our thing right now. And I was like, no, no, we're, you know, we are moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I went and it was a disaster. And I wish that I had slowed down enough to realize Mm -hmm. like, I don't need to keep up with my commitments. You know, I'm not in a calm headspace right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I need to let my schedule reflect that. And so after that is where I, I found a therapist that work specifically, you know, with people that have been through infertility or loss and she herself had had a loss and a genetic um, diagnosis similar to ours. And that was really helpful because I could ask really specific questions as the time went on. And I could ask somebody, you know, when I see little boys, the age of, you know, our child, will I always feel this way? And she could reassure me that while it won't go away, it will feel different. And Mm -hmm. just having somebody that had been through that was helpful Mm -hmm. in some of the things I was really grappling with. So that was in the beginning. And then right before we 
went to a fertility specialist or when we were kind of, I guess we had already had our first appointment, but we were kind of in that waiting period. I told myself it felt like somebody else had taken the reins from me, which was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And it was like, somebody else is worried about this. Somebody else is paying attention to it. So I can pay less attention. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm just going to take this month to just try to slow myself down and relax and I tried a lot of different things. I didn't go do acupuncture like y'all have talked about, but I got an <laughs> acupressure mat. If y'all, have y'all ever yeah, seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, my husband couldn't like watch me even lay on it because it, it looks um, <laughs> barbaric. But um, <laughs> um, but you lay on this like spiky mat and it really kind of helped me. I would do it at night when my thoughts would really kind of start to swirl. Mm. And that's where I feel like I did shift of like I was making these intentional choices to mm-hmm. slow myself down and that was helpful. Yeah, I think something you said about the social calendar Mm -hmm. is really hard because there's two sides of that where it's like you want to do things that are fun and like distract you, Mm -hmm. but that at the same time, it can be too much. Like perfect Mm -hmm. example of what you said. And I think unfortunately, as time has gone on and like more loss and grief have come up for us, like just the permission to cancel things. Mm -hmm. And there's like this fine line of like not becoming depressed and like Mm -hmm. retreating, Mm -hmm. but you know, maybe it's doing one thing Mm -hmm. that you don't really want to do and showing up for like a short period of time just to have like some social exposure and being okay with, you know, being sad when you get home and just knowing that that's normal, but maybe not having something planned every single day that week that maybe you would have normally had. I don't know. I just think you're able to reflect and say, we really probably shouldn't have done that. Whereas some people might totally retreat. It's like finding that middle ground, I think. Absolutely. I've learned a lot about myself and how I process. Mm -hmm. And I am this almost hyperverbal processor. Mm -hmm. I think if you know me, then you know that (laughs) I experience this loss because I talk about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And everyone is different. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like I've shared with y'all, I've loved this podcast because I feel like I get to know each of y'all <laughs> even better, you know, because you're not hyperverbal processors. And so I think that everyone does process it differently, mm-hmm. but it's figuring out what that looks like for you. Cause I did want to be around people. Right. I just needed to figure out, you know, environments that where it's really loud or with music or where I'm supposed to act happy and I'm not, um, can be hard or environments where there are lots of pregnant people is Mm -hmm. hard. And so it's kind of shaping your calendar to both help structure you to be healthy, Mm -hmm. but also not put you in positions that are really hard. Yeah. I would love to talk more about being a verbal processor and our, Hmm world today, not really knowing how to handle grief. Mm -hmm. So how have you experienced you being a verbal processor and our world not really accepting that sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. So one, I'm a therapist, so I obviously support (laughs) processing. Um, I I think that's why I I was drawn to the world of psychology. My parents are a great example where they got us into a lot of therapy when we were kids and we did a lot of family therapy and I feel like it just shaped our family in a really healthy way. So I obviously support it in that way. But I think even when people come into my office, they can be overwhelmed with kind of shame around processing Mm. things and, and saying them out loud, even though that is literally what they're paying me to do, you know, (laughs) to listen to that. And so I think that it's hard. We don't know what to do with it. I think Brene Brown is an amazing author and researcher. 
and she has done a lot of work on shame. And she talks about how shame is feeling like you're not enough, but also can be feeling like you're too much. Mm. And so I think when we have grief and especially ambiguous grief like this, which ambiguous grief can be grief of a less straightforward loss. So it can be loss of a dream, you know, loss of a relationship. It can be a loss of a person who hasn't actually left yet. So it could be Mm. a parent having a terminal diagnosis or a dementia diagnosis where they're still physically there, but you're losing them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's definitely true with the loss of what you thought your family would be like, Mm -hmm. or the loss of what you thought your pregnancy journey would be like, Mm -hmm. or the loss of a baby that you didn't get to hold, whether it's just, the timeline of when you wanted that baby or an actual miscarriage of a baby that didn't make it Mm -hmm, side. And so I think with ambiguous loss, especially we don't know what to do with that. And I think that we feel like we're too much when we want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you feel that way in your social settings? Definitely. And not because of anything anybody was doing around me, but just because I felt like it was like word vomit, like where whatever I was talking about, I was always thinking about the loss. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it came up a lot and I felt like I'm, I'm annoying people. I'm talking about it too much. And, or people think it's all I talk about. And it felt like I was going to push people away. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really grateful for the supports around me that did just listen to that because it's what I needed at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm really thankful for the therapy environment that I had where I could talk about that because I was thinking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. So it came up a lot. Yeah. I love that term ambiguous loss because I think we have talked a little bit about this, but just that of course loss is loss, but Mm -hmm. also the loss of a dream, right? Mm -hmm. Like the loss of the way your family would look or the loss of your timeline or things like that, that I think are like less tangible. And I don't know, I just feel like this is like a good bucket to put them in. Mm -hmm. So with that, I feel like, you know, you mentioned that you're a verbal processor and counseling was really helpful for you. What, what else do you think was helpful or would be helpful for our listeners in navigating grief? I think there can be so many different ways that you navigate it because it's important to remember that the reason that, grief, I think is so impactful and traumatizing is that it is that shift of these beliefs that we hold, Mm. you know, so we all have beliefs just about our world, about ourselves, about our identity. And a belief that I held was that, you know, it, it will be easy to get pregnant Mm -hmm. or that once you are pregnant, you will have a baby. Mm -hmm. And grief changes those beliefs. It shifts that a lot. And I think that that is really hard. And so finding ways to navigate that and just the feelings that you have is really important. So obviously I think talking about it is helpful Mm -hmm. as a therapist. I believe talking about is helpful because one research studies do show that when we can name an emotion. So Mm -hmm. saying I'm really grieving this, that it actually activates our brain in the same areas of our brain that help us regulate emotions. So really by just giving it a name, and I think giving it a name more than just I'm sad, saying I'm grieving this or what you're grieving really does help us to regulate that. Mm -hmm. And regulation is not about having no emotions. It's about just calming the sea. Mm. And 
I think that that's important. So even if you aren't a verbal processor, I think finding an environment where you can say that um, either to somebody else or to yourself. Yeah. I was going to say if someone doesn't have access to a counselor, for example, like would journaling be a good secondary tool? Absolutely. And I think that journal, I did a lot of journaling when, especially on those days where I felt like I was like white knuckling my sanity, where I felt like I was really obsessing or mm-hmm. really projecting as to, you know, we're not pregnant this month. We're never going to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Or even when I am pregnant, it's not going to be a healthy baby. Journaling just helped me to kind of get it out of my head and to slow down the rumination a little mm-hmm. bit. Another specific kind of journaling that I started was I got a, um, a five year prayer journal and, and it's kind of like a line a day journal. Mm -hmm. So if faith isn't part of your journey, I think that that can be really helpful too. And starting it and just like writing down things that happened that day, things that I was feeling, knowing that I would hopefully if I could stick to it, be writing in this book for five years and that five years from now, it may look or feel different Mm -hmm. was helpful. So (laughs) remembering that like, I'm just on this one page Mm -hmm. in this one chapter of my life and there will be a time where it won't feel this intense. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's how grief is. Somebody once gave me the analogy of we're nineties kids. So like, (laughs) um, you know, the screensaver where the ball kind of bounces around and almost hits the corner every time, but not quite. Um, Somebody gave me an analogy that grief is like that where where you feel grief is when kind of the ball hits the walls in that analogy. And so at the beginning of grief, the ball is so big in that square that it's just constantly touching all four sides Mm. and the ball doesn't get smaller, but the box gets bigger. Mm. And so it won't always be bouncing around touching the walls and there will be more space between when the ball makes contact and you really feel that grief intensely, but your life expands kind of around the grief and you won't feel it all the time. So it doesn't go away and we actually shouldn't aim for it to go away, but I think our life can be expanded around it so that we don't feel it as consistently. And I think that that is helpful for me to remember that this chapter will pass. There will be a time where I'm not like intimately touching this grief every hour of every day. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's helpful for listeners to share with people who are supporting them too, which we plan to do a whole other episode on how to support someone going through a loss. But I think a lot of people wonder like, when are you going to be back to normal? Mm -hmm. And I think that example is the perfect description. (laughs) Um, So I really loved that. So we kind of talked about counseling, journaling, Mm -hmm. just kind of like opening this up to all of us. Is there anything, Madison, that you, that was helpful for you? I would definitely say the same things that we've already mentioned. Movement, Mm -hmm. I would say, is big Mm -hmm. for me. So exercising, obviously counseling, and then just, I would say for me, being an internal processor, it's very hard for me to say what I'm feeling out loud. Mm -hmm. And so my counselor advised me to obviously tell her, I used Mm -hmm. to always say, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing the work because I'm not sharing with people. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you're sharing with me. (laughs) You know, I'm one person and you're sharing with your husband. That's two people. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I guess remembering for, or to remember if you're an internal processor, as long as you are sharing with maybe one or two people, like you are doing the work Mm -hmm. and you're trying And as hard as it is, it's a muscle that needs to be 
worked on daily and exercised daily. And so for me, that was every day working on saying my thoughts and feelings, which did not always come natural. I think I would say I'm probably between you two. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like I am a verbal processor, but maybe overanalyze like who I'm sharing with a mm-hmm. little bit. And so that's kind of my question is like, did you wish or did it change like sharing with certain people that maybe made you feel like you said you felt like you were being annoying or like pushing people away? Like how did you find the people that were, I guess, like supportive and safe and were they the people you thought they'd be? Yeah. So I think that, I think it may have been one of you that even said, this is the worst club with the best members. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true. The people that have walked through it Mm -hmm. know those feelings. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it is the deepest, darkest trench, but there are people there kind of holding up light. And so I feel like that was true that I was able to find people that had walked through that before. Mm -hmm. And I think even now when friends come to me either in the same situation or in that, you know, trying to get pregnant period, those feelings are still there in my heart. And, and I'm thankful when people come to talk to me about it because Mm -hmm. I remember that Mm -hmm. so well. And I'm clearly comfortable talking to people about it, but I think it's helpful to have those friends and finding people that have been in the same boat. I also think that as we talk about it, that other people are able to also share. Mm -hmm. But I think that it, it was hard. I had a lot of friends that were pregnant at the time and a lot of friends that were having um, babies around when we would have had babies. And they were also kind and generous and acknowledging just the hardness of the situation And I think that that is important too. just having people that, you know, they're not in that and they themselves don't know what to do because Mm -hmm. they are having a healthy pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But I think people were really generous in just knowing that that was hard. Yeah. I think something else you said about, you know, having people who've walked through it and Mm -hmm. then kind of like fast forwarding to when your due date would have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And something Madison and I talk about a lot is that like people show up always right in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately grief doesn't go away right away. So Mm -hmm. like there's this long period of time that maybe the box is getting bigger, Mm -hmm. um, but you're still having a hard time Um, or like milestones, Mm -hmm. dates, holidays, things like that. I mean, obviously a lot of it comes back to community, but was there anything that I guess was helpful in those situations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because now that I'm on the you know second year of my five year prayer mm. journal, I'm I'm going back and I can see right above where I've written what mm-hmm. I was feeling this mm-hmm. time last year, and um, our due date for that baby that we lost was in January, mm-hmm. and it still does feel hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that I will remember that date forever. I don't expect other people to, but I think that when we were approaching the due date this time last year Mm -hmm. and we were anticipating the baby that we would have had and we weren't pregnant again, which in my mind was this unbearable Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I do think people remembered, but that's because I remembered and I was talking about Mm -hmm. it. And so I think it's hard when you don't 
share because then people don't yeah. know and don't remember those dates. But I think people did check in, but it does, it does wane mm-hmm. and you will remember longer than anybody yeah. and that's okay. And you, you should remember longer than anybody. I think that that idea of, you know, babies replacing babies or that we should move on from our grief at any time mm-hmm. is, is untrue. I think it's disrespectful to, you know, our experience and yeah. our journeys and and we should remember it's just that life will expand around those moments. Mm-hmm. But I actually think about this a lot in terms of when people do have subsequent pregnancies or choose to adopt or foster that there's a lot of talk around, well, you shouldn't have another baby or you shouldn't adopt until you've healed that grief. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that you will ever fully heal that grief. It mm-hmm. just gets kind of blended in mm-hmm. in part of your story. And I think that's part of making meaning too. Yeah. I love that. I love that too. What do you think surprised you the most about your grief? Um, I think as a, therapist. I think I should handle emotions well. And, (laughs) um, and so it was just a a stark reminder to me that I'm human. Um, I think that that was hard. I did not feel like I was coping well. I think there were times where I was not very regulated and, but I think that's part of making meaning now is, Mm -hmm. and they've actually identified making meaning as the sixth stage of grief Mm. that it's, it's not making things okay. And it's not making something positive, but it's just, this is what it is and what comes from that. I don't think it's anything that we can force. I think this podcast is a great example of making meaning Mm -hmm. of something. Um, It does not make it okay. And what comes from it. I think that can be a really helpful part in processing grief, but obviously is the last stage. And so it takes a long time to get there. (laughs) Yeah. For those listening who might not know the six stages, can you share the six stages of grief with us? Yes. The five traditional stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think I walked through all of these, not necessarily in that order Mm -hmm. and not in any linear fashion. I think you go back and forth a lot, but they have adapted them to then add making meaning. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So talk a little bit about the emotions behind grief. Emotions, my favorite thing. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. So I think that for some background, I think it's important for us to know kind of what emotions do for us that I tell clients that come into my office that even if I, you know, could flip off some emotions in your brain, I, I wouldn't because they serve a really important function. They've kept us alive as a race, you know, um, the human race for this long. And even though they are uncomfortable, we're designed to feel them. Um, So emotions do three things for us. And I like the analogy of the car. So they're like a GPS. They tell you what to do. It's like the gas in the tank. It gives you energy to do it. And it's like the lights and blinkers. It tells other people what you're experiencing. And so with every emotion, it has kind of a message that goes along with that. So with fear, our, you know, response is to run away and it's designed to keep us safe back when we were cavemen from lions and things like that. (laughs) Um, Sadness though, and grief is a little bit different. So the, the purpose though of experiencing that is to both help us to acknowledge the loss of something important And also to give us those feelings and kind of the outward display of sadness too, is to draw other people in. And so when we experience grief and we try to 
push it down or shut it off. It, it's not going to go away that our brains aren't designed to work that way. Our brains are designed to utilize emotions to keep us healthy and safe. And that's really from an evolutionary perspective. So your emotions will not go away by being pushed down. In fact, your brain will say like, Hey, you're, you must not be getting the message and actually kind of expand the intensity of that. And so with sadness, we are designed to use it to draw close to people. And, and if you don't have people in your life, you feel like you can draw close to, there are so many other ways for us to process that, like journaling, like movement, but are there's something we're supposed to do in response to emotions in order to help them be experienced in that way. And if we don't, they will not go away. Wow. I love that. And what would, or could you think of an example of somebody maybe doing this poorly or not knowing how to do it? What does that look like? Absolutely. So I think that I can think back to certain times, even during my journey where I was experiencing sadness and just like pushed it down and, and went to work. And and that's not to say that distraction is not a useful tool. I think it is an incredibly useful tool. Um, but we have to remember that distraction is, is helpful in tolerating. It's not helpful in, you know, problem solving the emotion or moving through it. It's just helpful to get us through the intensity of something short term. So um, I use distraction a lot. And I think in some ways, it was healthy for me to have structure and get out and do things in a distracting way. But I think in other ways, I did need to feel that. And I think especially in the beginning, it was like, well, this happened, you know, we're going to box this up here, and we're going to move on and we're going to get pregnant with another baby. And so I think that that can be unhealthy, just not feeling that emotion. I think some other unhealthy ways that we kind of push it down is, um, is really numbing out. I think Mm -hmm. that when you're not pregnant, you can drink. And that is something that people can really sharply turn to, um, when they have the ability to do that again, especially after a pregnancy loss. On the topic of what the most surprising thing is, I think, so Madison actually recommended a book to me. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's called, it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. She also recommended it. (laughs) And it was fantastic. And just kind of a lot of what you've said, like validating grief and it rather than, and I think that's almost like our message here is just that like, it's okay to grieve and it's just, it is going to be a hard time and you don't have to like fix it. There's things that you can do to help navigate and mitigate. But the most surprising thing to me and one of my favorite lines was that grief rearranges your address book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you felt that, but I've very much felt that. And I think it's almost given like a, I don't know if labels the right word, but it's almost given me like justification for why I've felt different in certain relationships. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know if you felt that at all, but. Absolutely. Because I think it rearranges everything. Yes. It rearranges our view of ourselves Mm -hmm. and our experience with other people and how we relate to other people. I think our friendships changed when we experienced loss because I hadn't yet touched mm-hmm. um, something that y'all were very deeply going through. Mm-hmm. And so while I could be sympathetic from the outside, you know, I didn't have any personal experience with that. And I think it, it changes relationships and it can be for the better, but mm-hmm. it can also be hard. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's amazing. I think it, it I, I, there's certain friendships I've had that I'm like, why is this so hard? Or like, why doesn't this feel right anymore? And it almost just gives like 
like, it's okay. That's mm-hmm. just grief changes everything, like you said. So I guess just to, to say that if you're struggling with friendships or feeling like certain people aren't showing up for you, that that's just kind of unfortunately like part of this process and hopefully other relationships will become stronger or like maybe it's just a season. Yeah. So I just remember telling my husband at one point that I feel like the world is still moving at a very fast pace Mm -hmm. and I want it to stop moving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I was just at a point where I was hurting so bad that I was like, I don't want anybody else to keep moving. Like Mm -hmm. why is everybody else moving at their normal pace and their normal activities and their normal joyfulness? Whereas like I wanted everything to stop. Mm -hmm. Do you find that is true for a lot of people in grief? Yeah. I think we wish that could happen because it would give us margin. You know, I think that we don't feel like we have the breathing room to feel an emotion and that is what we need. And so I think even when it's not ambiguous loss, which I think complicates it even more when it is a very clear like loss, like the loss of a spouse or a parent, like I think our country gives like three days bereavement leave. Um, And so I think there is this idea of moving on. And I think, other people want us to move on and and we in some way want to move on. I think that that's the, that's the other thing about emotions is that our brains don't want to feel uncomfortable, you know, Mm -hmm. because discomfort back when we were cavemen was a sign of danger, you know, whether it be, you know, pain or anger or fear or sadness, all of those things kind of pose a danger of survival in some way. And so I think while we have advanced far beyond that, our brains are still kind of in that mode and it's uncomfortable. And so we want to move on. We want people to move on. And that's why people say things like, oh, at least, you know, you can get pregnant or at least it was early or at least, you know why. And, and I think while all of those things are true, it, it does not make the loss any less. And so I think that a lot of things that people say in grief are very well intentioned and it just points at the, the deep desire for us to want the people that we love to be okay. And we're not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. That was great. (laughs) Another area we haven't really touched on would be your spouse. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit just about how you maybe felt supported or how y'all grew closer or a hard time in y'all's marriage during that season? Yeah, I I think it was both. Um, Y'all have talked about before how hard this process can be and how it affects spouses differently. Mm -hmm. I think that what you said is true that, you know, you become a mom when you become pregnant Mm -hmm. and dads become dads when a baby is born. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very true. I think when we were in the kind of limbo stage and then right after the miscarriage, my husband was worried about me mm-hmm. and I was worried about the baby yeah. mm-hmm. um, because it, it was my body. And yeah. I think that from there, I think he continued to worry about me because I was feeling it so deeply. Um, I had the physical reminders of a pregnancy that was no more. I was the one that was peeing on test strips, you know, mm-hmm. that there was so much that only I could do and only I could know. 
or at least I had the burden of knowing it first, mm-hmm. um, that he didn't. And mm-hmm. when we were trying to get pregnant, like every twinge that you feel, you're like, what was that? Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, and he didn't have that in his own body. So I think that he had just a little bit more breathing room from it where I didn't, or when I was like really obsessively problem solving it, I chose not to have where I think he, that was healthier for him not to. And and I just couldn't get there. So I think that was challenging. Um, I also think he is um, just forever positive. Mm. And so this idea, and I was hearing it from a lot of people of like, we just need to relax. Like it's going to happen. We will get pregnant again. And I just couldn't hear that when I wasn't seeing evidence of it. Yeah. So I, I felt like things weren't right in my body. I felt like we, you know, weren't, we weren't getting pregnant and just relaxing or just letting it happen wasn't going to be the answer. And it was hard to hear that. I think that we also had a lot of positive experiences during that time. Like I look back and um, kind of think of it as my miscarriage season of like, what did I do in those, you know, six months after the miscarriage and um, they weren't all healthy, but I think we did a lot of things that we couldn't have done had mm-hmm. I been pregnant mm-hmm. and getting to experience that and say like, this was fun. Cause I could go and feel good. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are free to travel or whatnot mm-hmm. that that does not make it okay. And of course I would have traded all of that to be pregnant. I remember like sitting in the waiting room before we knew that I had miscarried and seeing all these pregnant women and they just would come in looking so miserable. And I was like, I would give anything to be miserable right now. I'd be, I'd give anything to be that uncomfortably pregnant, you know, but I think we did, we were able to also kind of, that's the and part is like, we were able to also do things that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So we went to a ton of concerts, even <laughs> after that first concert um, experience, it was not good. We rebounded and mm-hmm. I handled the rest much better. Mm-hmm. And we just did a lot of fun things during mm-hmm. that time too. And when the anniversary of the due date came up, uh, my mom was like, you need to do something crazy, like skydiving. <laughs> and my husband was like, maybe not skydiving. Like, you know, <laughs> so, like we don't need to add any other, you know, issue to this. But um, we did um, a culinary version of skydiving that I probably would not have been up for. And he certainly wouldn't have been up for, you know, um, had yeah. we been pregnant or been expecting a baby. And so I think that that was helpful and fun, but it's, it's hard to make fun out of a hard situation. I think Mm -hmm. it's just always in the background. And I talk to clients about how men and women, our brains are different too. And that I can't remember where I read this, but, um, that women, you know, we're like computer screens where we have all these tabs open and there's, it's always a tab open in the background. Like it's always Mm -hmm. there for me or, and it certainly was when we were trying to get pregnant, it was always there. And it almost was a relief once we passed the due date. And I don't think it was always there for him. And so that's the hard part. Yeah. For those who have maybe not experienced any type of grief or loss yet, we believe that you eventually will in your lifetime. But um, for those who have not, what do you think you would want them to know about grief or loss? I think that knowing just how pervasive it is, that it's not something that we can shut off and it's not something that stays in its little box 
is important because that's where I think I felt the most of I'm too much mm-hmm. is that the grief I was feeling about this baby and the timeline for our family and just what I thought our whole world would look like would seep into every part of our, you know, our world mm-hmm. where I think some people feel like it should be contained to mm-hmm. just that, yeah. you know, part of life. That. I think yeah. that's great. We've loved talking with you. And I think this gives so much perspective and has validated so many of my feelings. I know, I hope that it's validated um, our listeners' feelings. And this is not an easy topic to talk about, but we appreciate being able to talk about it with you and just to feel less alone in that, that we've all had hard times. And if you haven't had a hard season, you might, and that it's okay. That grief is not linear. And um, just hearing your story has been really helpful. Well, to kind of wrap up, we are sad that we had to have this conversation today. And we also hope that it helps others in their journeys and their grief and their loss. Um, we really appreciate Ashlyn, you coming on and being vulnerable enough to share your story and to also give us incredibly wise words with how to navigate grief and loss. So if you have any more questions, we would love to hear from you. The best way to do that is through our Instagram page, Never Alone Infertility. And stay tuned for next week's episode where we will be talking about how to support somebody going through loss and grief. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.